I'm Karen Florin, and this is the Storyline Podcast. Today, we're here with Dr. David Bingham in his home in Salem, Connecticut, and he is here to talk with us about the reaction to the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade. Dr. Bingham, um, you are uh, perhaps the most qualified person I've ever met to tell us um, to talk about this uh, issue. Would you tell us a little bit about your work? Well, it, uh, it really started indirectly when I was exposed to what was happening with illegal abortion. I, I grew up on a farm here in Salem, um, one of 11 children, 10 siblings. Uh, there was always room for one more uh, living on a big farm. Uh, and that was true of many of my neighbors. This was not uh, something I knew anything about uh, growing up. Went to medical school at Columbia. Uh, it's uh, located up in Spanish Harlem, up in the northern part of uh, the city on 168th Street. And uh, my first exposure to the problems of illegal abortion were um, my first day on the obstetrical gynecologic service where we watched a gynecologic operation from the amphitheater that overlooked the operating room and they were uh, removing the uterus and ovaries from an 18-year-old who had had a botched abortion and had uh, gas gangrene and it saved her life but she would never have any further children. And then they brought her back when we went to, for follow-up to what was called the septic tank, which was a ward, uh, t- uh, 10 beds on each side, um, all of which had women of all reproductive ages from 12 to 48. Uh, who were suffering the complications of illegal abortions and learned that every major hospital had such wards. And so actually one, uh, one woman who was in her 40s, I actually asked her how she could do such a dangerous thing. She had uh, four other children and she said her husband was an alcoholic. They, had not enough income to take care of another pregnancy and it would take away from her whole family. And she and I said, but you risked your life. And she said, yes, but I was, my life was not worth living if, in this situation and, uh, and uh, she would do it again. Uh, contraception had become legal because of something that happened during my college years, which was Dr. Buxton at Yale, where I was as an undergraduate, was a family friend, had challenged the law by giving a, a woman a diaphragm, a married woman, but he did it openly and let the police know he was doing it, so they were forced to arrest him, and it all went, and that's what became um, the law which changed, which the Supreme Court uh, uh, said uh, not only was it legal for married people, but that everybody should have this right and the government should not be in law involved. 
So as I went through my training, I uh, decided if I was going to be an OBGYN that I would learn how to do uh, the procedures. Actually, most of them are very similar if somebody's having a miscarriage. The, if what, I, what we didn't know is that a lot of the people we thought were having miscarriages were actually, they would go to a doctor, get it induced bleeding, get enough tissue out so they, we knew there was a pregnancy and then would go into our emergency room. So that's uh, what got me involved. And I did my residency in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and what I learned there was while the wealthy uh, could always go, at that point it was uh, legal in Japan. They could get a cheap round-trip ticket to Japan for $150. They would need a uh, yellow fever shot, and they would need a a, a a passport, and they would have a procedure that was fully legal by a Johns Hopkins trained um, doctor at a hospital for ten dollars. So the total cost would be the cost of their trip, and um, and uh, and, uh, and and ten dollars and. Uh, um, in a few days, they could be gone for a weekend, and no one would know. And then at the same time, we had a hospital on the outskirts of Detroit, at least not from a community that would ever get on an airplane, had never been on an airplane, did not ever know how to get a passport, would not get a passport, would not leave their community. They would get blindfolded, brought into a sedan to a motel uh, and uh, have a procedure done without anesthesia, uh, never seeing the face of the doctor sheet up there uh, hiding the person that was doing the procedure. And sometimes uh, terrible things would happen or if they were had heard that these were bad things, they they put knitting, needle, knitting needles into their uh, somebody would teach them how to feel for the cervix and the opening in the cervix, and they would put something in, coat hanger or knitting needle, often stopping the pregnancy, but often also perforating the uterus and causing the pelvic infections that were just uh, were deadly. But uh, it began to get legal in some states while, during my residency, the first states were uh, Oregon and Georgia, North Carolina, and then uh, New York State. Uh, when I got out of my training, uh, after those nine years, I went into the service as a major, served at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, where it was legal. And uh, <laughs> we had a situation in which the President uh, Nixon ordered that in uh, bases in which it was legal we should uh, take care of our own patients um, uh, on base. Even though my chief of staff was a Catholic physician um, who would not let me provide services and we had one, I really put it to him when we had a young woman who was the daughter of, um, of a respected black um, officer and uh, 
could not tell her parents, uh, would not tell her parents, got an illegal abortion and almost died in the hospital parking lot from hemorrhage. Uh, Roe v. Wade came uh, just as I was leaving the service to come back to Connecticut. My wife Annie is here today with us, and uh, uh, she and I d discussed it, and I was willing to, uh, I was uh, preparing to do what Dr. Buxton did, knowing that I might spend time in jail. I had inherited a little money, and my wife had been, um, had a family that was secure, so I could afford to do something a lot of my colleagues could not do. Um, and I, uh, so I was willing to, I was getting ready, and it was, when Roe v. Wade came, it was uh, just uh, two or three months before I was uh, left the service, and it was just like a huge weight off my shoulders. I could come back and work with Planned Parenthood, and we opened a clinic um, and provided services. Interestingly, a year after Roe v. Wade, uh, you can certainly look at the statistics from the, the uh, um, uh, nationally. Um, there are people that keep statistics on abortion. Uh, the Guttmacher Institute is a good place to get information. But we had estimated about a million abortions would be done nationally a year before Roe v. Wade. In the coming years, it dropped to about 500,000, and that was because every procedure that got a legal abortion was cared for by somebody who wanted to make sure the patients did not ever have to have an abortion again. Will you talk a little bit about your practice um, in Norwich? So uh, I started just by uh, doing just a Planned Parenthood clinic already existed in Norwich. Uh, there was a, a, a pediatrician who, if the gynecologist uh, wouldn't provide service, the uh, OBGYNs didn't, but a pediatrician did <laughs> to help provide from 12 and 14-year-olds that were getting pregnant. Um, it's a very... Um, uh, a highly Catholic community. As a result, uh, contraception and birth control was not something that was spoken of in most houses. I might say that uh, most of the patients that came to us for abortion procedures later uh, tended to be from families who did not discuss those issues. Um, Within the Jewish community, uh, there was a very strong feeling that if, uh, that you need to control your own body and that you shouldn't get pregnant. There was a very strong feeling about continuing getting through your education because these, if you got pregnant, you'd be thrown out of school. Uh, the boys that got them pregnant, they didn't get thrown out. Um, that was uh, one of the unfairnesses, but uh, we, we opened the clinic and provided um, service. Uh, uh, at first, uh, we, it was, uh, you know, the major thing was so that people didn't have to travel long distances. Uh, when I first came back uh, to Connecticut, I, was, I went on staff as an um, assistant professor at Yale um, and mostly taught, uh, uh, went around the state. To, uh, teaching this new procedure for um, 
tubal ligation so that women who didn't have to use birth control their whole lives, if they, uh, we could do what was called laparoscopy, where a very, you know, a tiny Band-Aid incision, they could come in and get an operation and, and go home the same day. And uh, University of Michigan pioneered in that, and I uh, so when I came to Connecticut, I was the first one in eastern Connecticut to have that. In fact, one of the first in the state. And so I actually, when I was at Yale uh, Medical School teaching, I taught physicians from around the state how to do uh, laparoscopic training. But the, Yale also had a clinic uh, at the time, uh, of, right after Roe v. Wade. And uh, so I assisted there and taught, taught, uh, taught residents uh, uh, how to safely provide care. And it's not just the technical procedure, it's also the psychological, emotional support that are needed by uh, women. I mean, that was one thing that when it's illegal, uh, that just doesn't happen. Everything's quiet, nobody can, you don't want to use your real name. You can't have the same relationships with people. Um, uh, and. Uh, so that it it just uh, is terrifying for people to, uh, to have to put themselves in the hands of uh, of um, people that are in those days were just making money hand over fist. They could charge five hundred dollars in downtown Detroit, even though the wealthy women could get an abortion uh, safely and legally and openly for a fraction that cost. And uh, so it's a this is where we're back at now, because some states are clearly uh, ones in which the poor people are not going to be able to take time off of work for to travel to some other state. Um, and uh, so it's going to be harder for them to arrange for it. Uh, it's expensive to travel. Uh, airlines especially right now have gotten uh, very expensive. So you drive for two days to somewhere, or you, um, and uh, two days there and two days back. Uh, can you take four days out of work? How do you arrange that without everybody knowing? Um, uh, and if you can't arrange it for four or five weeks, and you're already at ten weeks, uh, suddenly you go from a time when it's this very simple in and out procedure to something that may be take a half a day in the hospital or might be overnight. Um, and so we suddenly find people that are delayed and have much more risk from the procedure. Um, so, and so then there's that other controversy, you know, how late in pregnancy? Well, uh, the, you know, the more obstructions you put in, the later they're gonna be. And there's no doubt that psychologically it makes a big difference to people. Um, that as you know, that more and more that you're getting further along. Um, so that's an issue in which, when it's totally legal, they can be done quickly and promptly, and therefore much more safely. Um, and uh, and they can be given the, the the psychological support that they need to support them. Uh, and it's not abortion on demand. I've had patients coming in demanding that we do an abortion <laughs> for a 12-year-old that says, "Well, I'm pregnant, and uh, this is a life, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna murder." 
and I have to tell the parents, you know, if your daughter thinks this is murder, you're going to scar her for life if you force her to have this procedure done. So I've turned down a number of patients. Now you are a frequent uh, letter writer to the to the day, and and so I know that you follow um, very closely affairs everywhere, right? And as well as being active here in Salem, did you um, the I think the last letter I looked at was you were talking about Texas. You had been keeping an eye on this court um, and this and this Roe versus Wade case. You know, was there shock and at what point did you and how are you well i watched the all of the hearings when each of these nominees came in i was very tuned in to what was happening uh i watched uh, several republican presidents uh, like reagan and bush realize that they would stir up a hornet's nest if they went on. So they did said they were anti-abortion and that they were, uh, but they were not moving on that. They uh, actually appointed some of the some of the members of of the Supreme Court who turned out to be pro-choice. But one of the things is that when you go on the Supreme Court and you're like Gorsuch and you're raised on a ranch like being raised on a farm, you have no idea what it's like for people, for a woman who lives in, in a, a section and doesn't have enough income, doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't have enough food for your children. I mean, so I, I think that they're going to evolve. I'm not one that thinks that the court system should be taken apart. Um, but I was really disappointed in the, in the nominations. And the uh, if you just took somebody like Kavanaugh in terms of his life experience, it was he was a politician and had been, and that's where he had his first jobs as a lawyer. Were on, you know, were political for people that were not, you know, adults or grown in pre. Roe versus Wade, the, you mentioned the coat hanger, the knitting needles. We saw a picture recently of a, um, a, a woman in Norwich who died in a motel. You probably have, are familiar with that. It was, um, I think it was Gina Santoro. And, and maybe you remember, maybe you don't, but you've seen this case. Heard of it, yes. A lot of times, you know, this is real for you. Well, I mean, it was... Uh, you know, just that those first experiences, just going into a ward filled with people who had made this choice, and when you talked to them, they would risk it again, even though there they were in a hospital, uh, often lucky to be alive. And, um, you know, often we do risky things and we learn the hard way not to do it again, but uh, uh, when, when it's a question of, uh, of your whole future, uh, what you're going to do and what what paths are you going to take. Um, and the other thing is, 
you know, the, the real question people ask me, well, when does life begin? I said, this is a continuum, and every step along the way is, a, is, a, is one that is a more human. But to say that a sperm or an egg, is it, it, that life began at conception? No, no. Uh, uh, you know, to me, life began millions of years ago. We're all part of the same organism. And the question is, how healthy is this organism? If we have too many people on Earth and we despoil the Earth, uh, well, how much tragedy and what uh, will life be like? If uh, you know, what is uh, what does the future bring? If uh, if if people are living in poverty and and we don't provide healthcare and education, they're all the leaves off the same tree, and <laughs> we need to to nurture that tree a little better than we do. And that's why now that things have gotten better legally in Connecticut, I've really spent my time with the League of Conservation Voters, making sure that these babies that are born have a wonderful planet. And I just, I was, you know, just blessed to be able to be raised with nature all around me. Even in a state like Texas that is threatening to prosecute or perhaps have the, the father be able to have the mother arrested? Um, you have this hope that the states will figure it out. I actually, you know, I believe in the system. It's now they are squarely forced to face the issue. Uh, there are tax issues, there are regulation issues, there are things that make people not like government for one reason or another. Uh, and it might be that you're taking one of these people that's running for office that's, uh, you know, strictly anti-abortion, and but it doesn't. That wasn't an issue for any elections in any state, really. Uh, so you could elect these people, which I don't think the people now that they know that their own life and their own rights and their own independence and their own sense of responsibility is going to be taken over by the government. I don't think so. Uh, I really think that this is going to make every election uh, about, uh, really about, you, you know, what it means for equality under the law, what it means to, to have uh, uh, you know, control over your own future and your own life and not having government uh, uh, dictate it to you. So I, I'm, I remain an optimist. I wouldn't bother to write letters if I didn't think I could change minds. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure as a journalist you feel that way too. Why, why write? Why have this program if you didn't think that some people might actually have their eyes opened? And so I appreciate the opportunity to just uh, give some insight into what, you know, if they were in my shoes all that time, I, I could guarantee you that many of those people would have different ideas of, uh, of, of where government should become telling people what to do.